how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode is brought to you by IronJohnGear.com. In between your creative pursuits, make sure to check out Iron John Gear for top apparel, footwear, fitness items, outdoor supplies, sports gear, and much more. Visit the website for top deals on things like lanterns, backpacks, tents, snow clothing, bomber hats, sunglasses, fishing gear, and more. Visit ironjohngear.com today and save money on your next adventure. In addition to Iron John Gear, make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. The Forgiven is a story about compassion. When director Roland Joffe saw the play by Michael Ashton, he knew he wanted to turn the conversation into a film. In the movie, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, played by Forrest Whitaker, meets with the brutal murderer, played by Eric Bana, who is seeking redemption. Director Roland Joffe is perhaps best known for his Oscar-nominated films like The Mission, starring Robert De Niro, and The Killing Field, starring Sam Waterston. In this interview, he talks about the realism in his films, his complex and personal casting process to find an actor's, quote, flow, and the importance of forgiveness, compassion, and human connection in life. I think, really, one has to look at this in two ways. Um, I'm a human being, like everybody else listening to this program, and you, and I'm sure I've done very many things in my life that require forgiveness have required forgiveness of me in both receiving it. And and that's attractive and interesting to me, that that is part of being a human being. Um, I think that also what I was very struck with in terms of South Africa and what was actually going on in South Africa was the immense power of um, the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission as an idea, as um, both a social idea, a political idea, and a personal idea. And I saw a play in London which was about this discussion between Blomfeld and, and Tutu. And as I was watching it, I realized, this is so fascinating, I'm actually watching something that's about one person. It's as though Tutu and Blomfeld make up two aspects of one greater human being, although they're all so separate. And I found that very, very powerful and compelling. And it made me think about how one might begin to turn that into a film. And also, I, while I was thinking about this, I was watching CNN. And they were doing an interview with um, a farmer's wife, a very poor woman, who was living in Rwanda. 
And the interviewer said, you know, this is Mrs. X, and gave her name and said she, she's here in her, in her small hut attached to her little farm, um, and she'd lost all her family in the Tutu and Hutsi massacres, genocide, really. And um, she lost uh, her three children and her husband, four members of her family. And then the camera kind of pans across, and there's a young man sitting across from her on a stool. And the interviewer, who's white and blonde, said in rather kind of terrified tones, and this young man is the man who killed her family. And then she returned back to the, to the woman and said, how, how do you do that? I mean, how, how do you do this? And the woman said something utterly from her heart and utterly wise and utterly remarkable. What she said was, she said, I love my children more than my life. I love my husband as much as my life. Am I to turn that love into hate? No. My respect for my love of my family, which I have lost, is to keep that love alive. And one way to keep it alive is for him, and she points to the young man at the end of the table, to understand that love. And in understanding that love, see what he's taken away. And through forgiving him, I help make him a better person. And I do that in the name of my dead family. And I was so struck by this, because this was, you know, this wasn't a, a, a priest talking. This wasn't, a, as far as I could see, a member of any religious grouping or political party. This was a human being responding to something innately human. And I did a bit of research about reconciliation and forgiveness and realized actually all higher primates, actually chimpanzees and apes, etc., do kind of reconciliations. So this is part of our evolutionary process. And while I was thinking about this, I was watching television again, and there was a, an interview with a Palestinian, um, lovable man of about 50, I guess. And his daughter, I think a couple of years before that, or a year or so before that, had been killed by an Israeli bulldozer. I don't know whether it was accidental or not, but, but his response to that was he created a society for the promotion of friendship between Israelis and Palestinians. And when he was asked why, his comment was remarkably similar to this Rwandan woman's. He said... I understand the price of hate because it removed from me the person I loved most in the world. So am I supposed to add to hate? No. Having lost love, my job is to honor my daughter by making her a beacon, a symbol of love, which is what I need to bring to the world. And again, this, is, this was an ordinary person having this thought, and I felt I want to make a film the hero of which is an ordinary person. And without giving away the plot, although I guess you've seen the movie, the movie takes you in a slightly unexpected direction, but it honors that, that innate ability that exists inside human beings, which is what I think makes us human. So I've read that this movie was shot partially in a working prison. Uh, I've also read that Forrest Whitaker met with uh, the Archbishop, Archbishop several times. Can you elaborate on the importance of realism in your films? Yes. I mean, that's, again, that's a really sort of powerful question. I think... The, in a way, all film is a sort of artistic creation. I mean, in a sense, it's not real at all. It's an approximation of reality. And yet, if the approximation can be made well enough, it's such an extraordinary approximation that it is as if it's real. And I remember <clears throat> when I did The Killing Fields, one of the journalists who was in the movie, uh, was played, a character, his character was played in the movie, came and he said an interesting thing. He said, when I was in Hong Kong, after the movie came out, The Killing Field, he said, one of my friends said to me, you know, I really like the movie, John. He said, but 
what was shown in the film isn't exactly what happened, is it, as you've told it to me. And John Swain said a very important thing. He said, no, it's not in detail, but more important, it's what it felt like. And that's the key. The key to creating reality is to create something that feels, that recreates in the spectator the feeling of what it might be like to be there or what it might be like to have this or that emotion. So what one then needs, I think, to give the actors is to give the actors as much as is possible to make that become real for them. So we worked in a real prison. We worked with real ex-convicts, many of whom had actually been in Polesmore and had only been out for a couple of years. <coughs> so we did improvisations together with real warders. So Eric was surrounded by people who had had the experience in <clears throat> much the same way that Forrest met with Desmond Tutu and could sense from his reading of Desmond Tutu and watching Desmond Tutu on film, could understand the core of Desmond. And those two things then attach themselves, if you like, to the innate core of the actor. It's as though the actor shrinks as a person and at a certain point can then grow again as a character. And the more you can give an actor a real environment to work in, the realer that character can be and the, the realer the scenes become. So that, that's really what you're doing. And if they become real for the actors, they'll become real for the audience. I saw an interview where you spoke a little bit about your casting process. Uh, two things you mentioned were that you might go and watch the actor's entire body of work. And you'd also go and kind of ask them what they believe the film was about. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that process and how you uh, gravitated towards these particular actors for this film? Yes. I mean, <clears throat> Forrest is, you know, is a remarkable actor and he's done absolutely remarkable things, but he's also a remarkable man. I mean, he has a remarkable body language. He, he runs his own um, organization that deals with, with um, conflict resolution. Um, he's engaged. Uh, he has a kind of innate grace. And those are things that Forrest would bring to a part. Those are things that he, if you like, is what I call the flow. I think that <clears throat> every human being is a bit like a stream, and they have a natural flow. And things can block it or change it or whatever it is, but that natural flow will always be there. Um, and Forrest's natural flow would, I think, match extremely well with the work they needed to do to create the Desmond Tudor character that he created so in such a refined way. Um, uh, Eric Banner has a, he has an ability to connect to a kind of hard-edged masculinity that is very real, and yet, and yet, it's combined with a, a curious kind of fragility that's hidden, but is very present. And that was very important for the Blomfeld character, that, that, that Eric had that kind of combination, which, again, he could work at. And interestingly enough, work at covering, because Blomfeld hides that aspect of himself from himself. Um, although, as one begins to see in the story, he's also offering Tutu the chance to kick the door down, if you like, although that's not what he says he's doing, nor is it what he believes he's doing, because quite often we do things thinking we're doing A, but in actual fact discover we're doing B. And I think that happens in a way for the Blomfield character. So that's the way in which you try to find actors who have an, an innate affinity with the kind of requirements being the character we'll make of them. I, I guess that's the best way of putting it. So you've mentioned these two characters kind of being two parts of a whole. 
Um, this is kind of a, a broad question, but there are several references to ne- Nelson Mandela throughout the film. I've also just read the Archbishop, Archbishop's co-authored book, The Book of Joy, where he actually talks about Nelson Mandela needing to be in prison for 27 years because he was bloodthirsty in the beginning. Are there any possible aspects of Eric Bana's character that may have led to or been attributed to Nelson Mandela, or how did you kind of uh, come up with that character? Well, I think, you know, this is a very, <clears throat> you're raising a really, really good point, and, and a very important one. It's partly why I wanted the gangs in the prison, because they're not in the original play. The interesting thing about gangs in prison, as one looks at them, they're all about belonging. And they're about, that they have their own logic, and they have their own strengths and their own weaknesses. <clears throat> but the key thing is that inside that group, you are protected and you feel whole. And many of the people that I work with were actually gang members, and I talked to them about that. And one of them said to me, he said an interesting thing, he said, when I was in prison, I did need to belong to the gang, so, but I also began to learn something, which was I was going to be there for 10 years. So was the man in the bunk above me. So there was going to be no chance of me changing him. So the only thing I could change was myself. So I had to go through a learning curve. And you see, prison was a kind of education. And there's an immense truth in that, because I think for Mandela, that time that he spent in prison, he was abstracted from the day-to-day leadership problems, if you like, and was able to assess himself as a human being in a, in a, a tough and enclosed environment. So what he discovered inside himself was an extraordinary um, ability to have compassion, which actually was the same compassion that actually led him into what he was doing in the first place and considering, considering violence. So all these things are unified, but certainly the idea that Mandela could transform in many ways, although he's a completely different character to the Eric Banner character, still contains this idea that all human life is a process. There is no such thing really as a monster who is fixed at being a monster. Um, there is monstrous behavior which creates a monster. That itself may be, to a greater or lesser extent, cracked open, and the human being inside may be let out if you like. So all this is what kind of went into the thinking about the movie and, and the, my reason for setting it in Polesmore and, and having the gangs. I mean, it's all linked to this idea because, of course, Blomfeld sees in Benjamin himself 15 years younger and realizes that, that Benjamin's courage in a strange way is a sort of odd mirror image of his own although they both ended up in such different points, but both led to violence. Um, And that connection is interesting because the most important thing that human beings can do is to connect. That's our evolutionary strength comes through connection. We are not reptiles, and we survive through connection, and part of connection comes through compassion. And that's why this move is so relevant to America today, because... America needs to have the same dialogues that are going on in this movie in its day-to-day life. I don't mean to lecture Americans because I'm not American, but, but I'm very, very fond of this country. I think this country has the most enormous and shining potential. But it's also, it seems to me as an outsider, getting addicted to demonizing others. And I think that's not wise, and it's very destructive, and is not, I think a fair 
reflection of the greatness that lies inside the everyday people of this country. Um, I saw an old interview where you spoke about working with Robert De Niro on the mission. You said that he learned how to fence and ride horses for the film. What other kind of preparation either went into that film or went into your new film, The Forgiven? When I decided that I was going to cast the, the prisoners with real, um, well, real, with, with actual ex-convicts and was going to do it in a real um, um, high-security prison, um, I found myself improvising with, you know, 20 people, uh, many of whom were in prison because they'd been violent. Um, and I realized that what I was doing was building trust. And they were very suspicious at first, and it took, you know, a number of days for us to begin to see each other really as human beings, for them not to see me as some white European director who, out of whom they could get some money and, and maybe doing something or maybe helping their careers, whatever you know, transactional things were going on for us to gradually begin to see each other as human beings. And I remember one in one improvisation session when we were just getting together, I suddenly had the idea of asking everybody to sing. So we sat around in a circle. Everybody was a little embarrassed because none of them had acted before. And then one of them just started to hum. And 20 minutes later, there was the most amazing choral singing going on that was, which turned into a dance, was quite extraordinary. At that point, I learned how art, well expressed, binds us together. Um, and trust was born in that moment. And this is a movie about finding trust, too, and the price you pay if you don't trust or can't trust. So I suppose that was a lesson I learned pragmatically in the rehearsal period. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter where you also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.